Really looking forward to today's Power Lunch here on Lightning Power Play. Dave Mishkin here with you. As I got a chance to have a great conversation with one of my closest friends in the entire world, the great Paul Kennedy from Fox Sports Florida. We chatted about his long and extensive broadcasting career, which extends way beyond just covering the Lightning. And also his many interests and passions outside the world of sports. So without further ado, here is Paul Kennedy. My guest today is certainly very well known to Lightning fans. That's because Paul Kennedy has been a fixture on Lightning telecasts going back to 2003. And before that, he covered the team in that inaugural 1992-93 season for the Lightning. But Lightning fans maybe don't know as much about the other things that Paul Kennedy has done in his broadcasting career, a career that has spanned well over 40 years. And they also may not be aware of Paul Kennedy's many interests and passions outside the world of sports. So we're going to dive in to those non-lightning areas today with one of my dearest and closest friends in the entire world, Paul Kennedy. PK, thanks so much for coming on with me today. And my running partner yeah. in Dave, Michigan. <laughs> We're going to get into that. <laughs> across North America, many cities, great conversations across spanning two nations in North America. I kind of have our chat broken into two segments. And the first is, right. is a lot of like how you got into your broadcasting career and, and the many things that you've done. The second part is is stuff outside the world of sports. And I know you did a, a talk recently with Seth Kushner, the great Seth Kushner, and he talked to you a lot about your experiences with the Lightning. We're gonna kind of go in a different direction here. And I wanna start with your childhood. You grew up in Virginia. You were a Redskins fan, correct? Yeah, sure was. My father was a career military man. He came home from Korea. My, um, um, he was stationed in Alabama. I was born, we moved to California and then to, to Japan. And we were in Japan for four and a half years outside Tokyo. And I was going to school each day in Tokyo, which was a profound effect on me at a parochial school, a Catholic school, St. Mary's there. And watching Japanese baseball, the Yamiuri Giants and those teams, which were tremendous and the, the, the culture, the fervor of Japan. And we would also listen at night to the radio of Armed Forces radio of college games and pro games. We flew home to DC, got transferred to the Pentagon, came to the Pentagon. And at that stage in my life, as I'm coming into consciousness about the world around us, uh, he's a sports fan, I'm a sports fan. We started listening to the Redskin games, following the Redskins. Uh, following baseball there and the college teams that were in the district. We lived in suburban northern Virginia. And that, I think my father's love of sports um, triggered my, inspired my love of sports. It was something we did together. But then I found myself, I can remember vividly going into what is now RFK Stadium. At that time, it was in the mid-60s, it was D.C. Stadium. And looking at the aura of the arena, Dave, as you have before, and and knowing then that somehow, some way, I would like to be a part of the larger-than-life arena, the games, um, all of that that was enveloped there. 
and I've followed that ever since. Were there other teams in that area besides the Redskins that you were attached baseball. to? Major League Baseball was there. The Washington Senators, I was a passionate fan. In 1969, which to many would seem like forever ago, it's now 50 years or so, uh, Vince Lombardi was the head coach of the Redskins, and Ted Williams was the manager of the year in Major League Baseball, the manager of the Washington Senators, who are now the Texas Rangers. They leave a few years later. Uh, the All-Star Game, the Major League All-Star Game, as baseball celebrated its centennial, was also in Washington, D.C. at that time. It was a glorious time to be there, if you can imagine. And I, I followed those teams. Uh, we'd go see the Senators on opening day, the presidential openers. Um, uh, I remember going in 68 when we had martial law in D.C. after the, the tumultuous assassination of uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, in April of 68, we had military arm, armies on the street, our United States military. But they played that game on opening day as a, a, a show of, civil rest and control. In 69, they played the Yankees on opening day. Uh, Richard Nixon threw out the first pitch. Um, I remember all of those days. Frank Howard was the big home run star who later coached for the Tampa Bay Rays. He would hit titanic shots into the upper deck and they would paint the seats white where the ball landed. And uh, Ted Williams made a winner of that team. And Vince Lombardi made a winner, the Redskins' first uh, winning season in 14 years. And uh, those were glorious times being a high school kid in our nation's capital where your parents would drop you off at the Smithsonian or Air and Space Museum or something like that. And, and that was uh, your weekend activities. I thought this was normal for everybody, uh, but it was, it was a great place to grow up. Lombardi arrived in D.C. with great fanfare because he had come off a tremendous run as head coach of the Packers, a couple of Super One, Bowl victories. Super Bowl. Yeah. And he gets sick. His time with the Redskins mm -hmm. is tragically cut short. But you had an opportunity during the brief time that he was coaching the Redskins, you had a brief, uh, that brief time, you had a chance to meet Lombardi, right? Yeah, yeah I've always wondered why that happened, Dave. Happenstance, serendipity. We had a day off from school, or we were taking a day off from school, my second year of high school at Fairfax High School out in the suburbs. And a friend of mine, Dave Hunziger, who's now in investments in Los Angeles, uh, his mother, her office was on K Street. The Redskins at the time in DC were on K Street, their offices, and the team practiced at RFK. So it's April of 1970, his one and only season had just concluded, but he's in the office that day, has not been diagnosed with cancer yet. And we go to a little breakfast nook early in the morning, we were gonna go sightseeing all day. And we're sitting at breakfast, you know, a pancakes and eggs type place in DC in the hum of early morning at eight o'clock. And we're at a little narrow three top table and the next table over, right here, Vince Lombardi in coat and tie and associate sits down next to us. We knew who he was, and uh, we, we struck up a conversation with him. And he was very polite. You know, he had been a high school educator uh, throughout most of his life. He wasn't, uh, he was over 40 when he went to, to coach at West Point uh, for Red Blake as an assistant coach and went from there to the New York Giants as the offensive coordinator and from the off from the New York Giants, he went to Green Bay and had that run of success. So, but he always liked children, young, young boys. He had 
coached at Catholic schools and all. And he, he interviewed us. He was really polite. And uh, you read stories now about the men who said he intimidated him, you know, scared him to death when he played for the Packers and all. You see the videos on YouTube, grabbing, everyone's grabbing. What the hell's going on <laughs> out here? But he was now, he would be like you're talking to your priest. He was just really interesting. He said, boys, when you get done here, he asked us why we weren't in school, et cetera. He said, when you get done here, our offices are just down the street. Come on over and tell them I said it was okay and I'll show you around. Excuse me? So we did. You know, we bolted over there a half hour later and there he was. And the security guard said, you can't come in. But he was standing up on the second level. I'll never forget that. And he said, oh, hello, boys, come on up. And we came up and he spent 20 minutes with us, took us all around the offices, showed us pictures of great Redskins, talked about teams and games and players. I remember Gary Beeman and whatever. And about that time, Bobby Mitchell walks out of the office and comes down the hall. Bobby Mitchell, a Hall of Fame wide receiver for the Redskins, who Washington has just announced this week that they are going to retire his number. He was the first African-American to play for the Washington Redskins. Um, he introduces us to Bobby Mitchell. Bobby Mitchell was just retiring, going to be an assistant coach. He, Jerry Smith, and Charlie Taylor with Sonny Jurgensen, a quarterback, had been the top pass-catching combination in, in the NFL. So it, it, it's like a dream. And, uh, and then a secretary came, an administrative assistant came and got him and said, Coach, we've, we have some business here to attend to. And he said, boys, stay as long as you like. That's my Lombardi story. We stayed a little while longer and took off. And then subsequently that summer, he was diagnosed with a colorectal cancer and passed away before the start of the season. Uh, Vince Lombardi. There are so many. Have you read his book? Have you read that book? When Pride Still Mattered. When Pride Still Mattered. David Moranis, the great historian, wrote it. It's the biography of him. So Flash forward to just a few years ago, recall the Super Bowl was in New York City, and uh, they played the Super Bowl up there. And so for Fox, Big Fox, I helped them at times writing scripts. And the script they wanted me to help them with is the history of the Lombardi Trophy, all right? And so a, a producer named P.T. Navarro was going to produce this and asked me what I thought. And we discussed this, and he had the idea of perhaps to get uh, Cardinal Dolan in New York City to get St. Patrick's for us, arranged to have St. Patrick's Cathedral where Vince Lombardi's funeral was, and we'll bring the trophy there. And Cardinal Dolan will voice on camera the history of the Lombardi trophy, which we'll play on Super Bowl Sunday. And that's exactly what happened. We had to shoot it at 11 o'clock at night when it was closed. But he wore his vestments, had a teleprompter for him, moved the cameras around. He did three or four takes. Could not have been nicer. And I wrote off of that book, When Pride Still Mattered, the history of the Lombardi Trophy, how it got his name. He won the first two Super Bowls. And uh, so I've always been quite proud of that. And somehow that's related back to that high school kid that got to meet Vince. But the book would be a great biography to read because it's on race. He was uh, intolerant. He would not stand prejudice. Either um, uh, all lives mattered to him. Uh, race, you could, you black, white, whatever. He would not stand for any of it. If you were straight or you're gay, there would be no differentiation. It's a very passionate book uh, on Vince Lombardi. And I think you'd enjoy it very much. The thing that struck me about 
that story, a lot of things struck me, particularly how gracious Lombardi was, but the courage it must have taken for, what were you, 15, 16 years old at that point, to go up to Vince Lombardi's table and initiate a conversation was there any hesitation at all? Strength in numbers because you were there with a friend? or He was sitting right here. I mean, he was like you and me yeah. this close. But still, he's you sitting. had to go up and, and initiate the conversation. Well, he smiled. I remember he looked over. and You know how you, you see a celebrity and you look and they look at you and they know you know. And right. you know they know, you know. And he smiled and he said, good morning, boys. And my friend Dave Hunziger just wrote me a note. And on the note he wrote, Good morning, boys. He said, I can still hear his voice. You know, but it calmed him down. We were no threat. You know who he reminds me of? A man you know very well. He reminds me of John Tortorella. Yeah, I was thinking of Torts when you were talking about the, the gruff so, exterior. Know, John Tortorella can be demanding on standards yeah. around children, around other endeavors. Most compassionate, friendly, warm, sincere individual. Uh, is John and uh, his wife, Chris Tortorella. So you attend college at Virginia Tech, which is not I close to Northern there. Virginia, I, <laughs> by the right, way. Right, we were from Northern Virginia, big state school, and many people were going there. Yeah. And so we went there. You know, I, got, I applied to three schools, uh, James Madison, the University of Maryland, they had a great journalism school, and Virginia Tech, elected to go to Virginia Tech, great choice, met wonderful friends. And they had a campus radio station. They had all of that and so you get you you knock on the door the first day and say i'd like to get involved and just so fortuitous in the athletic program there were many opportunities to do things just before the internet where you can't broadcast and stream anything it was over the air radio uh, marty brenneman the great hall of fame baseball broadcaster received the ford frick award he's in cooperstown just retired as the 40-year voice of the cincinnati reds when i was there he was the play-by-play voice of the Hokies, and he and his color man, Don, uh, Don Lloyd, uh, I was their spotter. I sent a letter, can I be your spotter? Can I be your gopher? Well, sure. Dave, for a young, you tell me. You, you followed mm-hmm. a similar path when you're getting started. Young people, if you can do that, you learn, you meet people, you see how it's done. And uh, your learning curve is like a rocket being around these people, but I found all those people to be really gracious and trying to help. And uh, so, uh, and that was just really great. It was a wonderful time. And I also got to do local high school games. Uh, there was an AMFM station in Blacksburg, Christiansburg. Uh, and so I would do the high school football game of the week on Friday nights and a high school basketball game on Saturday nights. And made a $25. I would like to find a $25 a game. I would like to find one of those checks and frame it if I ever had a canceled check. 25 whole dollars. But it was priceless. Dave, what was the first one you you were able to do that it gave you the experience to do the game, listen to your little cassette tape, yeah. and improve? That well, was- we started uh, We started at our college radio station before they let you on the air to do games. You had to do what was called dummy broadcasts. So you'd actually go to the stadium or the arena and call the game into a tape recorder. So you had evidence of your work and you'd play it for the upperclassmen, keep a copy for yourself. And that was a way of getting practice. But tell you what, I never got paid even $25 for, for doing it for me. Because as a freshman, I 
paid money to get tickets to go to the sporting events. To do it. And no, as before I got involved in broadcasting. And so I'd go as a spectator. And when I found out that I could get into the games for free, get fed, because they always (laughs) feed you, right? Football halftime would have a layout, right? Where you could eat. I said, I get to watch the games for free, get fed, and get a a seat in football at the 50-yard line? Are you kidding me? And do something that I'm excited to do. Sign me up. Credential. You have your credential, and when they hand you your credential on the on your belt, I felt <laughs> so proud going through the media. It was press that I press entrance on my belt. Had my little briefcase. I, it was self-esteem. You were you were taking that first step or the next step. It was it was so wonderful. And uh, I had Dave Wills and Andy Freed last week. We talked about a variety of topics, the great baseball announcers on radio for the Tampa Bay race. And I asked them about breaking in and how they got that first job. So, okay, you were getting paid $25 for doing the work while you were an undergraduate, but how did you parlay your college work into a full-time, full-paying job? And what was that first job? It was at the University of Richmond. I'd gone to D.C. I'm in a big market. There's no jobs there for a kid out of Virginia Tech. You're out of school at this point? Out of school. And so bounce around a little bit. I go to Richmond, the University of Richmond. I'm staying with a fraternity brother, Jim Carlton, his brother, Fred. They let me sleep on the couch. And I go start going around. I go and interview for a radio job in Petersburg. Don't get it. And I go to uh, the University of Richmond and the sports information office has a position that will pay $330 a month and you can eat on the training table and you can, that's it. 330 a month, yeah. no benefit, eat on the training table. That's it. And a gentleman named Frank Soden, a hall of fame broadcaster there, been doing their games for 40 years. Frank, I uh, was in his sixties and an associate athletic director. He said, go see the sports information director, Bob Dickinson, then who would go on, the Citadel and the Atlanta Falcons be the Falcons PR director. He, he hired me under those terms. And I got to work on the coaches shows, help out producing. My friend sold me a room for $50 a month in a, in a house. I, so I got off the couch and got to a bed. I rented it for 50 bucks. I got a room in his house and that's how I started. And um, when people are not paying you, they have, they, there's a sense that you're empowered in the sense that you get to do anything you really want to do. I, I helped out on the coaches shows. I stayed up all night editing film. I helped out on the radio broadcast. They're not paying me. So look, you don't got to pay me anything because I'm, I'm already here, but I'm on the inside. And we played in football, West Virginia, Wisconsin, beat North Carolina. They were playing major college football at the time. Jim Tate was the head coach. And in basketball, they, they had major games, but they also happened to play. Uh, Yuki Washington was one of our forwards. He's now the top anchor in Philadelphia, the CBS affiliate. University of Richmond, a great 4,000-seat university, private 4,000-student university, law school, business school. We played Vanderbilt University at Christmas time in a holiday tournament. And I met the Vanderbilt people, meeting people. 
And lo and behold, that spring, I got a call from Vanderbilt. Roy Kramer would go on to be the, create the college football championship, be the commissioner of the SEC, called. And they offered me an opportunity to come and work at Vanderbilt because they had met me uh, at Richmond. And I did and moved to Nashville. And Nashville had WSM and Gaylord Broadcasting, Grand Ole Opry, 50,000-watt station covering their games, and I got to work there. And now I'm working with the SEC on a big station in a big city in a wonderful university, not that the others weren't. But again, Dave, it's like these, mm-hmm. it just keeps, the, the seas keep parting. Were you and, doing, uh, were you doing play-by-play at Vanderbilt? Because Richmond, no, I, you started. Host, I did some games when Charlie Mac Alexander was there a long time. Hall of Fame guy, uh, wonderful fella, taught me so much. Our basketball at the time was a King Kong, 15,000 every night. There was no hockey in Nashville. There was no NFL in Nashville. Vanderbilt football, which was struggling, or had struggled historically, uh, still drew well. And basketball was over the top drawing well. Those kids were, were rock stars in a, in a booming market and uh, playing in the SEC. So I would get to do some basketball games. Then my, my first play-by-play at Vanderbilt, and used to have to sit in the upper reaches of the third level. It was a press box above the court. 15,000 people. The Russian Olympic team under Alexander Komelsky, <laughs> Basketball Hall of Fame, the head coach, that won the gold medal. Uh, they are there uh, with uh, Arvidas Sabonis, Bellastini, those guys, uh, to play Vanderbilt, okay? To play Vanderbilt. Now I'm, and Charlie can't make it. I'm it. I'm going to call the game. Great. On WSM, the 50,000-watt clear channel voice of the Grand Ole Opry booming through 28 states and parts of Canada, about as big as it gets at radio at the time, okay? I am terrified. And, and I'm going to do a team I've never seen in the Russian Olympic team, and uh, play Vanderbilt, and the names, uh, I, uh, I think it was C.M. Newton, the great coach, said, spell them out phonetically. Yeah. And I wrote them down, you know, Bell, B-E-L-L-O, Steeny, and Sa, S-A-H, Bo, Nis. So I was, when I looked down and look up, look down, look up, it was phonetic. It was not the spelling of, does that make sense? It, I still do it today. If I see a name that I've never seen before, and it may be a European name that you've not committed to memory yet, I write right. down the phonetics because it's how you say it. It's not how you spell it when you're on right. the air. Right. But once you got going, it once and once the game started, everything was great. Everybody was fine. It was fun. And we, we did a lot of traveling to go around the SEC. And from there, I got invited to come to Alabama and – call the Alabama games, work in the athletic department. Ray Perkins hired me there. I did five years of that. And then Sunshine Network was starting. They were starting regional sports networks across the country. It's 1988. And Dave Olmstead is starting this network in Florida. And so I came down to work on Florida State football with Keith Jones. And a couple of years later, met some guy named Phil Esposito, who was barnstorming trying to convince the NHL 
that hockey would work. And we were one of his barnstorming marketing partners. So we went all over Florida broadcasting exhibition games of hockey. You know, the Rangers come into play, mm -hmm. Boston Bruins, or the, uh, Bruce McNall brought in the Kings with Gretzky down to Miami, and we televised that, trying to convince the NHL fathers that it would work. Phil was. He was a Pied Piper. Oh, was that fun. And we came in in, in 88, and it ushered in, Dave, coincidental, the golden age of Florida sport. For when we started, there was no NHL. Now there's two teams. There was no NBA. Now there are two teams. There was one, There was two pro football teams, the Dolphins and the Bucks. Uh, now we had the Jaguars. There was no Major League Baseball, but the Rays come, the Marlins come. So it exploded. And all the football teams were good. The Miami, Florida, and Florida State were all great. You kind of blew through five years in Alabama, but I want to go back to that because you arrived right after Bear Bryant had retired and then passed away within the year right. of his I was retirement. There at, I was there at the end with Vanderbilt um, in that we played Alabama that last year. Could have, should have won that game in Bryant-Denny Stadium. Held him without a first down the last year. And uh, we went to a bowl game that year. Vanderbilt did. George McIntyre took Vanderbilt from 1-10 to 8-3. We were we beat Florida. We beat Tennessee. Vanderbilt. It was amazing. And uh, But Alabama, uh, Coach Bryant was uh, – and, and Coach Bryant departed as, as an – as a younger man, he was still in his 60s when he retired. I can, I'm in my 60s now, too, so I would consider that young um, somewhat. Uh, but stepped down, and Ray Perkins, who had been an All-American wide receiver, followed him. And, um, and we started that year, and I was there for five years and, and had an opportunity to call football, to be the lead announcer on football, and again, to meet wonderful people doing wonderful games across the country. I mean, cataclysmic. When we went to what was interesting to be around, perhaps it's like that with the Tampa Bay Lightning now, Dave. When the Lightning come to town, that's the big game, mm -hmm. right? When you go into an arena, wherever you are across the NHL, that is a big, that is a tough ticket. It is a, you know, you're going to get to see the stars of the Lightning. Uh, and and, and, a great, and, a, and a great show is about to come. It was kind of like that with Alabama, that it was, I said, like being with the Beatles, traveling with, you know, it was huge. And then I went to Florida State with Coach Bowden, and he's in, just initiating that dynasty where he went while we were there, 14 years in a row, double-digit wins, 14 years in a row, top five. It was a, every week they were winning. And, uh, and he was the best guy. You know, if you ask who's the best guy you ever met in sport, it might be Bobby Bowden. He's just a peach of a guy. When he met my wife, Joan, I go, uh, Coach Bowden? Go, yeah, Paul, what's up? He goes, uh, I go, Coach Bowden, this is my wife, Joan. Um, she's from Huntsville, Alabama. He goes, Huntsville? Hey, I'm from Birmingham. You know, like, wait a second. <laughs> They're like, you know, it's just a charm to it. Yeah. Are you like, are you really, 
Yeah, but what part of Huntsville? I've been to Huntsville a hundred times. You know, he was just away from the game. I've seen him on the practice field when he was like uh, uh, very focused and dialed in. You know, I just, we're going to play to a standard, but he's also tremendous, just tremendous. And everybody, everybody in the state of Florida has a Bobby Bowden story, I think, of what he's done for them. But we had five years at Alabama with Ray Perkins and Bill Curry and some phenomenal athletes. Mike Shula was there, uh, our quarterback, great games. Uh, so it was just, it was a lot of fun. You also managed to work in to this chronology NFL games and you did NFL Europe too. When did all of that come about? Yeah, that, and how? That's great. that happened in the mid mid nineties. Uh, they were starting. Uh, we did Florida state. We were doing the Florida state games and uh, Fox Dave Olmstead. They, they founded Mike Slive, the commissioner. They put together a late conference USA started. And primarily for Fox Television, that was the other partner. It was um, Fox Television and Conference USA, so we would have the rights to their games. It was West Point, um, Tulane, Southern Mississippi, Cincinnati, Louisville. E uh, Brian Breesman, uh, media relations uh, director, would be upset if I didn't mention his alma mater. East Carolina mm -hmm. was in there. We went there, and they were playing – big game. So, uh, so we, we did those for a few years and I got a call. The, the NFL was doing games in April, May, and June and starting NFL Europe, uh, which was going to be uh, a way of developing quarterbacks and players. They were going to allocate from every team players from each of the teams. There would be six teams in Europe. You'd be based in London and in April, May, and June, you'd play 10 games plus a championship game in Edinburgh, Scotland, London, England, Amsterdam, Frankfurt, Germany, uh, Dusseldorf, Germany, Berlin, uh, Barcelona, Spain. Uh, and we would fly out each week to these games. And what Fox did with these, and Fox was televising this, they sent young people uh, to direct and produce these games. And those are the people like Rich Russo is now directs for Joe Buck and Troy Aikman, he directs the Super Bowl every year that Fox has it. He's their number one director. And he was our director in NFL Europe. All the producers came from NFL Europe. Troy Aikman came over in the offseason while he was still playing and learned the craft of this. This is how you put the headset on. This is the talk back. This is how you structure a broadcast. He was willing to do that. And uh, Kurt Menefee. Bill Moss, Brian Balding. I'm trying to think of all the people that came over there as announcers and you'd come over for a few weeks and then go home and Fox would get to know you. I, I stayed um, 10 weeks for like three, four years. And it was, it was fantastic. So you've done football, pro and college. You've done basketball, the magic. Well, you didn't even NFL mention that. Too. Right. Got me to the NFL. They yeah. Yeah. Tell that story. Well, they said Joe Buck needed something was up and, and it needed about four or five weeks that someone needed to do the games. And I was sitting at my desk and they said, we want you to go this week to do Buffalo and Detroit with uh, Jerry Glanville. Okay. Uh, I don't know if there was anything I did. They needed somebody. So I did that game. Then they called a week later, said, we're going to send you here. Then we're going to send you here. We're going to send you here. 
So I did. I just went and uh, and it was a it was a lot of fun. Did it for years. And uh, not every not every week, do four or five games a year, uh, but it was wonderful. And do some some college games and uh, uh, and uh, would see people that I'd met in NFL Europe, uh, and then see people that had played at Florida State, Florida, and other places. So it was it was a lot of fun. And uh, did that for years. And then of course with the worked with the Orlando Magic mm-hmm. from their inception. Pat Williams started it over here and started hosting their games when they began in 1989. And uh, now it's, what is that, 32 years of the NBA, 32 years. And Dave, is it true? It goes by since the time you arrived with the lightning, it goes by in the blink of an eye when you look back on it. Mm -hmm. I mean, the years are kind of long. Then you look back and you go, that's five years ago. Uh, No, that was 10 years ago, (laughs) right? It accelerates quickly. There's no question. It's not linear. Time is not linear. But David Steele and Jeff Turner and all these people that you meet. And uh, and it all came off that kid, I think, watching games. Uh, Wes Wes Unsell just passed away, the great Hall of Fame center for the uh, Washington Bullets. And I grew up, all I wanted to be was the voice of the Washington Bullets. He and uh, Elvin Hayes and Phil Chenier and those guys. Uh, Wes Unsell, when I was uh, a young teenager, won the MVP and Rookie of the Year the same season. Can you imagine that happening in the National Hockey League? You win the uh, the Hart. Sounds like something Dryden would win. You win the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the Hart and the Calder in the same year. But that's what he was. So I always wanted to be around him. And, uh, and, I, got, and I got to meet him later uh, in life. And uh, it was very polite to me. I don't know that I can think of any other broadcaster who has had the range of exposure and experience you have had pro and college football, pro and college basketball, hockey, baseball. You covered the Marlins during your time in Florida. Marlins with Gary Carter, with the late, great Gary Carter, who was just so good to me. This is Gary Carter. And I follow uh, the Gary Carter website on, uh, on Twitter, pictures of him every day, passed away from neurological cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, Hall of Fame catcher, the height of his powers. He would say, Paul, I'm tired of talking about me. Let's talk about you. <laughs> what do you think about me? You know, he was, <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you go into Wrigley Field to do a game and you're with Gary Carter and it's a beautiful day and the Oregon's playing. You're going, pinch me. Meet Tony Gwynn, my favorite player of all time, Tony Gwynn. If you wanted to spend some time with Tony Gwynn and get to know him and talk about hitting, easy to do. All you had to do was be there at noon for a night game, a 7 o'clock game, because he was already going to be in the clubhouse, already looking at video, because he studied his craft so passionately. And he was very polite and a tremendous hitter in our lifetime has there been a better hitter. You could argue perhaps not than Tony Gwynn. But to, to, to be around these people, even like being around lightning players today, you're, you're men of tremendous accomplishment who are still in their 20s, most of them stammers in his 30s. But uh, that to me is, is very interesting. And, well, uh, that's, and that's I was actually, I that was going to be my question because you've had 
so much exposure and experience to athletes in different sports and coaches in different sports. What do you see as some of the similarities between those athletes in different sports and coaches in different sports and some of the differences that maybe make them singular to each sport that they're in? You're saying everybody tries hard. Who succeeds? Obviously, some are smarter than others. Some try harder than others. I've always thought discipline, the, the ability to be quite disciplined, especially if you're a coach and to communicate, to be, to be wise, but really being a, a grinder. Most of the coaches that I knew uh, were, were driven and disciplined. They said about Don Shula, who I got to know and hosted shows with his Dolphins for four years, got to know him through Mike Shula, that you can look at your watch on September 15th on a Tuesday and know exactly where he was and exactly what he was doing because he did it the same way throughout his 30-year career in winning all those games. I was there when he set the record and most wins in the history of the league. We did his show for about uh, six, seven years in South Florida. But I found coaches like John Tortorella, the, guy, the guys that drive it, Coop, the, the guys that have structure to them, uh, Steve Clifford with the Orlando Magic. Uh, Stan Van Gundy was like this too. They have structure to it and they want to help the players be prepared for the next game. It's not like creating structure of it's my way or the highway. You're trying to educate Dave Mishkin on this is what you're going to see tonight. And this is how you can be most successful. And if you do a, B and C, you have a probability of winning that approach seems to work well with with athletes i think it goes back to discipline those that hone their craft you have a maniacal uh, nikita kucherov and i say that in a complimentary fashion uh, almost Lawrence olivier like in the way that he studies that olivier studies acting right you don't let him see the gears grind because olivier was fanatical uh Kucherov is Stamkos, same person since the day he walked in that room to today through all he's been through. You know, there's, there's that consistency of performance. And that's what I've always admired. People that aren't like this, because I'm probably like this, but athletes that are like this, uh, Alex Kalorn. You're going to get the same Alex Kalorn every night. Uh, Vazzy, Hedman. Those guys, don't you see, Dave? What would you say? Do you see? I find them intelligent and driven, and they're consistent, the, the discipline uh, of it all. I don't like it's Wade Boggs eating chicken every day for dinner. <laughs> Marty St. Louis did that. How yeah, about that's Marty? superstition, for sure. Uh, I, think that, I think at least in hockey, the athlete has changed from the time that our good friend and colleague Phil Esposito played because there wasn't as much of a commitment to fitness, certainly in previous generations, but the common denominators definitely are a hunger to compete, a hunger to win, a hunger to be the best and appreciation for perfecting their craft. I think all those things that you talked about transcend kind of where you are today. I mean, it's been true going back to the beginning of competitive sports and in other disciplines too, probably whenever you talk about trying to compete and win and be the best in whatever your field might be. 
But it's well, I, I see that, but I don't have the exposure in my career that you have had in these other sports. So that's why I was curious. If yeah, but I think that. that's a common denominator. I think it goes back to school children. You know, I want to pass the test and get a grade. Are you willing to prepare to pass that test? Right? It's, I want to, the will to compete, the will to win. What is the will to win? Define that. Is it the will to prepare? And the will to prepare in June, in July, in August, Remember Marty St. Louis having to push the sled, Stamkos, those, those big truck tires up in Markham, Ontario with, um, uh, with his Gary workout. Roberts. Gary Roberts. Are you willing to, to eat only what Gary tells you to eat during the summer months? You get six days where you eat only what he gives you. On the seventh day, you can go out and have your chips and salsa if that's what turns your crank. You get one day. You want to have that cocktail? You get one day. It's Go crazy, but you won't because here comes those next six days. But if you are you willing to do that? And most of these guys are. And then when you stand there at that face-off for that national anthem, getting ready to play that game, you know you've done everything you can do to get ready. Tony Gwynn, I've looked at this picture. I've looked at his last 10 starts. I've looked at the last 10 games in my last 50 at-bats against him. I think I know how he's going to pitch me. Are you willing to do that? Or is it easier to just take a lighter approach to everything? It's going to be all right. I mean, I walked in to see Vin Scully the first game the Marlins played in the regular season. They would win this game. They played the Dodgers, uh, 1993, April, game one, Pro Players Stadium, South Florida. Vin Scully had been doing Major League Baseball, NBC, World Series, Hall of Fame, as big as it is. And he was, I went into his booth, and it's about an hour and a half before the game. He's not there. Don Drysdale doing color with him. They're down, downstairs. They're not there. The cage. And I look down. I'm standing up at the top of the booth, and I look down at his scorebook, his scorecard, his spotting chart. And, Dave, it was a rainbow of red, yellow, green, blue, orange highlighters and pens and marks and arrows. Uh, spectrum of blue ink names and numbers, uh, hundreds of stats, tape down numbers. He was doing game seven of the World Series in game one of a brand new baseball season. He had prepared for that game like he would for any other game to his standard, you know, to be the very, very best. Uh, that was 27 years ago now. And it blew me away. It was a great lesson there, right? You can't cut corners, you know. Like, what did DiMaggio say? Someone might be seeing me for the first time. Mm -hmm. so, I heard that story. Yeah, it's a good story. This has been great talking about sports, but I think if somebody looked at you and said, Paul Kennedy, the broadcaster, I think I know that guy pretty well. Paul Kennedy, the broadcaster, is a fraction of Paul Kennedy, the man, <laughs> because you are about so much more than just sports. And just as an example, when you got to Virginia Tech, it reads in the media guide, you studied English literature and poli-sci, both. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I'm curious great. how you came to that decision to study those two areas. You know where that gets why they Why they interested uh, you, you so know, much. I get, I'll tell you first, when it gets regrettable, near midterms and near finals 
because it seems like every course assigns one book to read and you're taking six, five or six courses and you realize if you budget this, it's gonna be a hundred pages a night or you're doomed, right? And, and, and everything. But first of all, I uh, grew up on the Washington Post. Uh, it's the height of Watergate, right? The first president I ever voted for was Richard Nixon when I was an 18 year old running against George McGovern. Uh, George McGovern had won the Distinguished uh, uh, Flying Cross for his heroism in World War II. Uh, Nixon had been elected in 68, voted for him in 72. He and Agnew, how did that turn out? Uh, but uh, we're studying Watergate, all the president's men, Woodward and Bernstein, and, and all that involved in all the different branches of the government, the legislature, the Justice Department, uh, international business, Nixon opening up China. I had lived in Japan. Uh, we were there were two Germanys, you had Russia. My mother sent me 19, Christmas time, 71, I went on a school trip to the Soviet Union. We stayed really? at, the Kremlin, at the Kremlin, the height of Vietnam is still going on. Um, my father had been in two wars, he got out. Uh, his career concluded in 68, uh, Vietnam was roaring, everyone's drafted. It was a very political time. And uh, I used to love Theodore H. White's books, The Making of the President. And I started with the, the uh, Jack Kennedy, Richard Nixon presidency, and then 64, Goldwater, LBJ, 68, Bobby Kennedy, unfortunately assassinated. Uh, Nixon wins over Hubert Humphrey. 72, of course, the, the uh, Nixon election that I just alluded to. So at the time, if you put it in a historical context, that's why there was a passion for political. And I liked all I like Shakespeare. I like uh, all the uh, English romantic uh, literature, uh, fiction, Hemingway, uh, and whatever you like to read. Fiction. I like historical fiction. I like um, fiction. Just it was it was wonderful, and uh, I always thought I would study that, and don't regret it. It was good. I still I'm still in touch with them. Not so much the the political science department, but the English department. And I've always said to uh, a friend of mine works with, Bill Roth works with the communication school there. I said, get them to take English literature, get them to read, read, develop a vocabulary, not fancy words, but the ability to think and read and, and appreciate, uh, appreciate literature because it'll come back and help you with your broadcasting. Um, and so I, I, I did both. And then, uh, but, I didn't study communications. I didn't study journalism. Uh, not that there's anything wrong about that. I studied, what, did, what was your first major in college? American studies, nothing to do with broadcasting. See, and what but was I your did degree? it as an extracurricular activity and got right. to practice doing it. That was correct, the practicum of it, right? So what, what, do, what were your degree is from Yale is in what? What would the- American not studies, a, yeah. So right, basically communication. it was a broad right. discipline covering America and yet have a concentration in that. My concentration was literature, kind of like you. What, what was, I like so to read. What was your, your yeah, your concentration in literature, was it a particular period of American literature? No, I mean, they just had courses that covered American literature. And you could right. do 20th century. You I, could take a course on 20th century. You could take a course on 
this discipline, whatever. And I had to take other American courses too to fulfill the major outside literature, but you had to have a minimum number in your concentration. But I like to read and, and I like to write, although I like writing more when I'm finished writing, not when I'm sitting down write to write. Great. Your analysis of games is always perceptive because I'll read that and go, why didn't I see that? I didn't know. I, oh, he's right. I didn't know. Oh, yeah, I see it. You know, I mean that complimentary because you see it. Sometimes I don't see the chess, the ballet of it all. Uh, I did. I want you to know, Joan and I got married uh, last August on Nantucket. You know, Tom Mulligan, the head trainer of the Lightning and has been uh, for a long time. He's from New Bedford, yep. which was the whaling capital along with Nantucket. He's very much into whaling and Moby Dick and all of that. Tom Mulligan is. And we connected on New Bedford. I went to the Whaling Museum, and then I went to Nantucket, the Whaling Museum, and, and uh, much of um, Herman Melville's Moby Dick is set on Nantucket. And Tommy and I got to talk about that. He's the head medical trainer of an NHL team. Mm -hmm. You would never know that, uh, that he would have this passion. He's a well-read guy. So I, I did, I, I actually liked Moby Dick. You get to the second half of it, it's a lot better than the symbolism in the first half. But I like to read. and uh, Well, you do like to read. And it's kind of a running joke in our broadcast travel party. And we'll get to why you aren't traveling as much as you used to and, and how we spend time together when you did travel regularly. But all of us regularly over the course of a week receive multiple texts from you with attachments <laughs> to articles that you have read that you think might interest us individually. So I might get something that is different from what you might send Brian Engblom, let's say. Maybe that's the way my mind works. I go, oh, man, this, <laughs> yeah. this well, house. I'm just wondering on a given day, how much time do you spend reading the newspaper and finding, not you're, you're doing it for you and you're thinking of us, but how much time do you allocate in a day to, to reading and finding those articles. But you probably, probably 90 minutes in a day over the course of a day gets used by reading newspapers or articles. Of course, when in the height of the season, we have to read for content. And by that, I mean sports sections, hockey, NHL, all the clipping services, which are infinite, insatiable. What would I say, Dave? I mean, there's more than you can consume. There's yep. a fire hose every morning from SportsScan to NHL.com to Twitter to the media relations departments of two teams. To There's more than, than I can process. But that being said, um, the, uh, the ability, I like to read at night. Sometimes I get tired in the evening. When you want to read a book, right, just you want to read for effect. Uh, I just finished Quo Vadis, which was about, Quo Vadis was Henrik Sankiewicz written in, eight, in 1890. Quo Vadis was on Rome, ancient Rome and the development of Christianity. It's historical fiction. It was fantastic. You felt like you were in Rome. Uh, he won the Pulitzer Prize for that back in the early 1900s. Uh, every, uh, Fourth of July, the first, second, and third of July, I read Killer Angels. Mm -hmm. I tradition, read it again and again and again about the Gettysburg, um, Michael Shara's uh, Gettysburg. And 
So, but I, I try to read late, late in the evening. If you start reading, do you find at nine, 10 o'clock? Sometimes I'm, it just won't stick. It won't process. So trying to read earlier in the game, but I read little uh, religious, spiritual, devotional early in the morning. You try to do that early first thing. So the first stuff that comes in the pipeline is good and healthy <laughs> rather than a problem. Uh, you know, rather than the failures of mankind, here's hope for the future. Warren Berger, the great Supreme Court Chief Justice, is the one that said he started his day in D.C. with the sports section because he wanted to read about man's triumphs rather than going to the other sections of the paper and reading about their failures. So I found that interesting. So you start the day with that. And, but I, I have a potpourri of interest. So That you do. Well, I definitely want to hit on one of your biggest interests, and it was in this area that you and I really connected and our friendship deepened. So we met for the first time the 0304 season. You had been away from the Lightning, came back. You've been with the Lightning ever since. That was my second season as radio broadcaster. We met and we got to know each other. We became friends. There's a couple of pictures famously taken from champions after the Lightning won the Stanley Cup in 04. The two of us are there. So we were friends for sure. But I think our friendship deepened and became cemented in the 05-06 season. So we missed 04-05 with the lockout. And it was during that time that I made a real commitment to run regularly. I was... I was a casual runner, but when I say a casual runner, I would not classify myself as a casual runner like real runners classify themselves as casual runners. I'd run a couple of times a week just to stay fit, although I wasn't as fit as I probably should have been. So during the lockout, I made a commitment to run regularly, virtually every day, maybe one or two days off a week periodically. And I'd run around my neighborhood here in Florida and that became a habit. So 0506 begins. And when the team goes on the road, my instinct was to go to the hotel gym. I didn't know where I was in terms of the neighborhoods or anything like that. So I can remember right. it like it was yesterday. We're in Anaheim. It's December of 05. And I think we came back from the morning skate. And I got in my workout gear. And I was going to the hotel gym. And you were there in your running gear. And you were going outside. And you said to me, where are you going? I said, I'm going to the hotel gym for, for a workout to go running. He said, no, 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 you don't. <laughs> You're coming outside with me. And you took me outside and we went to Angel Stadium. Yep, it's we, went to, we went to the Honda Center. I think we went past Disneyland because it's all in the same Very vicinity. Close. It was also in a, a smaller performing venue where Tom Jones, the great entertainer, not the writer, Right. But the singer was going to play that night. What's new, Pussycat, Delilah? Uh, it's not unusual. He was going to be there. I remember yep. that run on a sunny day in Anaheim. Yeah, in it? December. And we ended up at Starbucks, and we got a coffee, each of us. And from that point on, because you were traveling regularly at that point, whenever we, we did were our in a city. Shows from the venues. We did our pregame shows on Fox. Yes. Fox Sports from the venue. Uh, rather than now with Bobby the Chief Taylor and Dave Andrewchuk, the Hall of Fame captain, wonderful to me. Uh, we do those in uh, in our studios. 
Right. But then you were coming on the road with us on virtually every trip and we would end up in a city and you would take me, essentially take me on a route that you knew in the city. And over time, as you started traveling less, I was like a little birdie leaving the nest. You know, like, oh, we're in Philadelphia. I know the route that Paul showed me. Or, oh, we're in Boston. I know the route that Paul showed me. And, of course, now. Boathouse Row. Is exactly. Boathouse Row. And, of course, now you know, I pretty much know the routes myself. And, and the way you can access data now, if you have your phone, you're never really lost. But I guess my, my roundabout question is, when you were learning these routes in all these different cities, you didn't have a smartphone. You no, probably you didn't even have a way of knowing where you were going <laughs> until you got there. How did you learn all of these different routes as you traveled yeah, to a variety fortune. of different cities? Yeah, good fortune. Well, in New York, you just go to the park and you can lap around Central sure. Park in six miles. I remember being in LA and I was getting ready to run my first marathon. It was going to be like 90, 94, 95, 95, the Disney. And I was out with the magic. We're seeing a Marina Del Rey at the Ritz Carl Marina Del Rey, which is right near where they filmed the Gilligan's Island opening boat scene when they pull out. But I said, I need to, I needed a 17 mile run that day. And they said, the, the uh, concierge said, well, if you come out of here and make a left and start running that way, you go down, you'll hit L.A. airport, turn around and come back. That'll be seven, 17 miles. I said, what, it's about eight down there? Yeah, just run along the beach. Not on the beach, but on the sidewalk. There it was. Golden Gate Bridge. Let's go run the Golden Gate Bridge. back. Now we've got a San Francisco route. But that's how I did it. And it was always fun. You could always just bring a pair of running shoes and go to Boston, go to Fenway Park, come back to Commonwealth, Boston Commons, go down by the water. But you name a city, Dave, name a city, we'll give you the route. Remember when yeah. we were in Vancouver? We were in Vancouver, Stanley Park, and our rooms overlook Stanley Park. The planes are landing on the water there in Vancouver. It's a beautiful day. We had flown all day to get out there. And we go for that run. They said it's six miles around Stanley Park. And we start out, and we get about three miles out, and who's coming the other way? Remember John Tortorella mm -hmm. by himself is coming the other way. He goes, what are you doing out here? No, what are you doing out here? <laughs> and uh, so we, every, every city has a great running room. Chip Carey and I, we were playing the Phoenix Suns and we were staying in Scottsdale near the Biltmore and we got lost. And what was going to be a four mile run turned into the Scottsdale marathon. We got turned <laughs> around. We probably ended up running about, nine miles, 10 miles, just trying to get home without perishing uh, out in the, in the land of the cactus. But you go, Dallas has a great route. If you say a city, I give you a route. Yeah. Atlanta, go to Georgia Tech. Well, when we would go on our runs too, it wasn't just the route. You would give me a history lesson. We'd run by a statue, let's say, and you'd say, there's this gentleman, and he did this. Or did we'd that. run past a landmark, and you Mount would... Mount Remember Mount Royale? Go up a mm -hmm. Montreal, go up that hill by McGill University. How hard are you breathing when you get up to the top of Mount Royale, where you get to McGill University coming up that hill? That's pretty much a gut check. 
And, but to, to see that in the great history of Mount Royale, Montreal is Mount Royale, and the panorama of the city. I just love the history of it all and all the statues that are there. Yeah. Yeah. So you have been a runner, certainly as long as I've known you, and going back well before I knew you. And there was one year in your younger years that you qualified for the Boston Marathon, which is a great honor and hard to do, unlike other marathons where you can just sign up, New York Marathon. If they can fit you in, they will. I ran you a 3.30. I ran a 3.30 at Disney. And that's the point. In Boston, you have to qualify. So based on your age, based on your age, you need to be below a certain time. And you qualified, but you, well, weren't, and, and, you and, weren't able and, to run it, right? Yeah, plantar fashion. Uh, I run Disney in 3.30, and that's run in January. And it was going to be the centennial, 1996 Boston Marathon. The centennial, the 100. You know, there's special medal, special this, special that. And I get the airfare, the, the airline, the hotel. It is set. And I am running the peak of my running ability. And that right foot begins to twinge about a month out. And anyone that's dealt with plantar fascia will tell you that that's insidious. It's the, the mm -hmm. fascia, the tendons underneath. Just got to rest and it. It's the only thing you can do. And if you're rest, resting and run, resting is not conducive to being a good runner. Um, and, uh, the doctor that I went to see, the great orthopedic practice here, uh, said I could shoot it. I could give you a cortisone shot, but it might crystallize and rupture on you. And so I had to sit there on a day in which Boston turned out to be 65 degrees and not a cloud in the sky and watch it on TV sitting in Orlando. I remember that day like it was yesterday. That's as bitterly disappointed as I've ever been because I was in great marathon shape with the exception of uh, – a bad foot and I couldn't run it broke my heart, but I've been able to run some other marathons uh, in Europe and South America and went to Quebec city and ran that marathon by Frontenac and uh, La Colisee and Quebec city in the summer is picturesque in the winter. It's a little difficult, but uh, I liked going up there with the lightning back in the day and, you know, and staying in the great hotel up there. But it's big winter, but ran there, ran Berlin, ran Chicago. I've had some, uh, ran D.C., Marine Corps, uh, the Marathon of the Monuments. I've run, you know, when we've run the uh, Tampa, the Gasparilla Festival, mm -hmm. isn't that fantastic? Mm -hmm. All those Great races. Race. Yep. 5K, 10K, half marathon. What am I missing? 8K? There's the like 15K. 15, I ran the 15K. Yeah, that's you the signature race. You look like a, a military general with all of the medals that you have on. <laughs> all the hardware, bling, 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 bling. I like the Expos, too. I like the Expo. And doesn't, didn't Outback sponsor all the post-race food? And so I was just gouging myself, gorging myself on food afterwards. We are normally playing. The Lightning are usually away during that yeah, race. But away. a few years ago... The Lightning were home. They were home the whole weekend with no games. And I had an opportunity to run in the race. I ran the half marathon. I think you ran the half marathon we as well. Yeah. You were faster than me. 
<laughs> and it was a great experience. I'm glad I had an opportunity to to do that because it really right is Vancouver. a taste of Tampa. Yeah, yeah. around Davis oh, Islands and over Davis Island, and then you come back. Is it Davis Harbor? Davis Island. And yep. Then you come back. Then you go down Bayshore. The Bayshore run, even during the course of the season, I like to run in the morning down Bayshore. And uh, you'll see lightning coaches. You'll see lightning training staff, equipment staff. They'll be running there. See people from McDill, people out of their houses, running up and down Bayshore. You'll see dolphins. <laughs> uh, it's great. Yeah, I need to look ahead or else I'll trip and fall. You're the one who can <laughs> keep your head on a swivel. It's, it's amazing when you look over and there is a, uh, there is a dolphin sitting up next to you on the wall. You know, it's... 10 feet big or eight feet big. Incredible. I wanted to close with a subject that is not only near and dear to your heart, but really the, the essence of, of who you are in many ways. And that is your deep faith. And you've had deep faith commitment to, to God and, and your religion is very important to you from the day I met you. But I didn't know you as a kid. Was that something that you've had when you were introduced to religion as a child? Or like a lot of people, they, they find that it deepens when they're an adult. What was, so. your, what was your faith journey like? I would say that describes it pretty well because my mother and father placed me in parochial schools in Japan, St. Mary's, uh, priests going to mass every day. And whatever, and we weren't Catholic. Uh, we were Baptist. And then you get into adulthood, and I went away from it. Uh, but you get older, and you begin to ask if you look up at the stars at night, who created this, and why are we here? The bigger questions of life why are we here? And uh, my, uh, and how big is your God, right? Is your, the God of this world, this universe? or all the heavens. And um, I became involved with a program called Alpha, A-L-P-H-A, that uh, Nikki and Pippa Gumbo uh, started in London. It was very good. Um, was inspired perhaps by the brick and mortar of the cathedrals and churches. My time in England when it really got to me to be somewhat of an epiphany. Came back home and got involved with the Episcopal Church in uh uh, in Orlando and, uh, and then of course met Joan and we are, she's on the chapter board. She's on the board of our Episcopal church and we are congregants and study scripture and, and uh, try to be the best person and best servant that I can be. We all have tremendous failures and I leave the list in that, but it is something that is, uh, is a very high priority uh, for me now. And I think David comes uh, with, maturity and I hope I'm more mature now than I've ever been before in my life. It's interesting that you refer to yourself as somebody with lots of shortcomings because most people who meet you and get to know you don't describe you that way. You are one of the most positive, optimistic people I've ever met who has a good word to say to everybody that he meets, whether that person is someone he's known for years or he just met. Is your faith tied to that? Help enhance it? Or 
Is that kind of your, your natural aura <laughs> that you're a positive person? Well, I think your parents instill that in you, that you can always be better and be positive. Um, and all, I, one of my favorite expressions is, and I said this to my wife, she says it back to me, love, what is love? Love is a verb. It's what you do. And I get uh, uh, with your life for others, trying to help others, being positive each morning. Uh, uh, today is a great day. Uh, let us uh, rejoice in the day the Lord has made and all. And you meet so many great people. Uh, let me give you a case in point. Brian Dugan, the chief of police in Tampa, who now faces perhaps the most challenging, arduous job in the city. He came in and when I had prostate cancer, gave me this, came in and said, I want you to have this blue band right here. Um, I want you to wear this. And uh, nobody fights alone, it says. And uh, I've always been touched by that. Here's my pole pole. Pole pole is going up Kilimanjaro when Joan and I climbed Kilimanjaro a couple of years ago, which is the most beautiful place I've ever been. The summit at 19,000 feet of Kilimanjaro. Pole pole is slow down one day at a time, one pole at a time, pole pole. Nice and easy over eight days to the top of Kilimanjaro. Prepare for it, do it, and then experience in Arctic conditions standing on top of that continent. Uh, and who created this and all of this beauty? Um, so that, those are reminders uh, to me, touchstone reminders of me, of love, of faith, uh, beauty, and trying to be positive. Did that help you when you were diagnosed with prostate cancer? Yeah, sure. And, and having great doctors, one of the most preeminent, the most preeminent prostate cancer surgeon in America is a guy named Vipul, V-I-P-U-L, Patel, P-A-T-E-L. He's in Orlando. Uh, and I was diagnosed. Uh, my good friend Rakesh, my urologist, said my numbers were out of line. Did biopsies, said you do have a problem. They did the surgery. But I'm fine now. Miraculous. I've always wondered why. And this is a very deep question here, Damon. It goes back to spirituality. Why did our generation have all of this medicine laid at our feet, have the opportunity, the society, to research and come to this sophisticated level of medicine, whereas mankind, up until about 50, 60 years before, had very little of this, right? Penicillin was discovered in the 40s. Um, you had MRIs, the things we take for granted, the tests that we can do, the lives that we are saved, the drugs that, that, that help and sustain us, all of this, the eyeglasses that we wear, the contacts I have on, nobody had any of this um, uh, 50 years ago or the ability to, to, to diagnose it. And uh, we do now. There's another question is uh, why does God love us so much that it, that it all comes to us right now in, in the course of mankind? Some deep words on which we can close because I've run out of one. questions. And if fans Here's are- Here's another one, Dave. Here's yeah, another go ahead. one. How do I get a hat like that? <laughs> That's what I, look at that. Look at that. Yeah, this was, uh, this was Sweden issued right here. I was in. The I miss you. I miss you running in Stockholm. I got to see the whole city. Oh, Did you I went really? in a different direction every morning. Every day. How far would you go each morning? Not crazy long. Four. Four miles, maybe. 
which for people who aren't running, that, that seems like incredibly... take a like little map of and go four miles in that direction. I'm going to go, or two out, two back, right? Right. And I had the benefit of a phone and a laptop. I could see where I was going. But, uh, but yeah, Stockholm was great. And I hope at some they point... They played well. It was a great trip, wasn't it? Uh, the trip it was a great life. trip. It was, and I really enjoyed I'd never been to Sweden before, and it was, yeah. it was fantastic. I would like to go there in the summertime and see it. And Victor Hadman, Matthias Olin, when he had his place up on the water was here, he said, you have to come and see this. Come stay with me. Uh, Victor Hadman, come on over and stay with us. Let me show you what this is like in the summertime. I understand it gets dark early in the wintertime, but uh, they, they all say it's fantastic in the summertime. Well, Paul, I thank you for taking the time to, to talk to me and talk to the fans. Beyond that, I thank you for your invaluable friendship and counsel over the years, your partnership as we pounded out the miles on the road for all those years. I would say we would get on a plane to go to the next city and we're traveling at 11 o'clock, 1130 at night. By the time you've done a game, you've called a game, you've been dialed in on a game. And uh, much like me, and I'm exhausted. I'm like a zombie just sitting down in the chair. And I'll look over, and there you'll be. The book is open, and you're all into it, reading away. You've written your column, which is fantastic, and then you'll be into another book. And it's all I can do to keep one eye open before the wheels of the plane touch down in the next city. Uh, but uh, that's, I remember that greatly, sitting there in those planes. The reading does help me wind down after a game, and everybody has their own methods. But um, these weren't hockey books. These are that needs to yeah. point needs to be made. This is not as if there's anything wrong with that. They were away from your profession, just growing your intellect, your mind. Thanks again to PK, Greg Linelli, and I back tomorrow for Friday's Power Lunch. Have a great rest of your day, everybody.